we're going to look from heaven and we're going to see the church and what the church looks like from way up there. It's very exciting. Actually, there's different descriptions of the church in the Bible, but here is one of the most sublime and heavenly. So let's read, we're going to read verse 19 to the end of the chapter. So he writes, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would take these words and make us come alive to them. And by your Holy Spirit, help us to set our mind on things above so that we might see what you're building and see that we are a part of it and what our purpose is in that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So my question is, what do you think of when you think of the church? What immediately comes to mind when you think the church? A building, okay. I'm going to church today. So that means I wasn't at church, now I'm going to church, right? And I mean, there's some grounds for saying that because that, in the Bible it does use the word sometimes in that, less, in that lesser form. Or you could say you're going to gather with the saints today. Okay, that's one way. What else do you think? All the saints. Okay. That's a good answer. Um, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Yep. That's a good answer too. Well, being relevant to our culture here, uh, it, most people would think the church is an organization. So when they think the church, they would immediately think this organization that Christ established on the earth, which is the church, which it isn't actually me, I'm a part of it, but the church is this organization. Now, we've had some conversations in the bookstore about this, and it's important not to react to that, because the church is organized, but it isn't an organization, and there's a difference between those two things. So Jesus certainly organized the church, by giving apostles and prophets and sending us out with a commission. and So it was like if I said, okay, this half of the room go down and witness at the park, you know, Willow Park, and this half of the room let's go witness at Merlin Olson Park, I've suddenly organized us, but we as a body aren't an organization. So if our organization falls apart, it doesn't mean the church fell apart at all, you see. So the church might be organized, but it's not an organization. But a more evangelical answer to the question, what what do you think of when you think of the church, would be all the saints or the body of Christ or all the believers or a group of people who believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and he's their righteousness. A group of born-again believers. But I want to say that that is absolutely true, but that's still not quite the idea of what the church is. If you just think the church is all saints, that's true. But that's like saying a guitar is made of metal and wood. I say, what do you think of when you think of a guitar? Metal and wood. It's made up of metal and wood. That's absolutely true. But when we say the church, 
and we just say all the believers, that's absolutely true. That is certainly what makes up the church. But the church isn't just all believers. Well, that's not the idea. So a description of something isn't quite the same as a definition of something. So if I were to describe the guitar, I might say it's wood and it's metal. But if I say that, I could be, you might not know it's a guitar. It could be all sorts of things. But if I define it, then I'm talking about the essence of what it actually is. So a description is like the appearance of it, of a thing, and a definition is the essence of a thing. So what is a guitar? It's certainly made up of metal and wood. I could describe it that way. But how would I define a guitar? If you had to define it, I'd say a guitar is, a, is a, a musical instrument, a musical stringed instrument, and its purpose is to make music and bring us pleasure. That's a guitar. And Paul is going to show us the essence of what the church is here. Not just the description, but in the essence of it. And so to say that the church is merely all believers or people, a group, that's absolutely true, but it's just a description. It's just, that's what makes it up. But what is its purpose? What is its essence? What is it for? How would you define that? That's the question that Paul's going to look at here. But in verse 19, we do first see that it's made up of people. So let's just look at the, the stuff that it's made up of. It says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. What he was talking about, because we're kind of jumping into his thought, is this idea of Jews and Gentiles now being one in Christ. So the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles who are now one in Christ. They're no longer separated. Now therefore, you're one because, look at verse 18, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. So the reason why a Jew is, is now one with a Gentile and a Gentile is now one with a Jew is because they both relate to God by Christ. And they've both been united to God through Christ and in Christ, and now, therefore, with one another. So, it's funny, you are one with people you've never met. Like we talked about those saints in Nigeria. You are one with them, but not because you one day decided to be one with them, but because you became one with Jesus. And in becoming one with God in Christ, you suddenly became one with them and others who have also become one with God in Christ. So the focus isn't necessarily, how can I be one with Tom? How can I be one with Elliot? No, we both just access God and are one with him by the Spirit through Christ Jesus. And instantly we're one with one another. And that's why you can meet a stranger and you, you know your family instantly. Because you have the same father. So it's made up here of Jews and Gentiles who are one. And he's speaking to the Gentiles here in verse 19. He says this really neat thing. He says, you're no more strangers. You remember how we talked about how a Gentile is outside of Israel and outside of the commonwealth of Israel? They're strangers, they're aliens. You're no longer Gentiles, essentially, is what he's saying. Now you're in. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer outside. But he says foreigners also. He says, you're no longer strangers and foreigners. But the Greek word there for foreigners would be sojourners and who knows what a sojourner is? It's a traveler, but it's, it's more specific than just a traveler. Yeah. Correct. A sojourner is someone who lives 
in a place, but he doesn't actually belong to that place. So, for instance, I'm a dual citizen, so it doesn't apply to me, but my friend who's coming from Canada is going to be living with us for six months. But he's not actually an American citizen, even though he's living in America. That is what a sojourner is. And we're called sojourners because we actually live in the world, but we're not of the world. Okay? That's what it means. It doesn't just mean traveler. It means you're actually dwelling in a place, but you don't belong there. Like you're not a citizen. You don't have the rights to that place. You can't vote. You can't do all sorts of things, though you may dwell there. The word is a near dweller or a sojourner, but not actually part. And so he says, you're not even outside. You're not just not outside. You're no longer strangers, nor are you sojourners. You're not just kind of in, but not really in. You're not living amongst the saints, but not actually a saint. You are a fellow citizen. You have all the rights of a true child of God. So you're not just one that hangs out and wishes he was in. But you're in. That's what he's saying there. With the saints and the household of God. And then he, by saying the household of God, he means now you're all family. So this is who we're talking about. He's got these people in view. And this is what makes up the church. These Jews and Gentiles who are now family, who are now one in Christ. They're all on the same level and no one's on the outside. But now notice what he says in verse 20. Because he doesn't stop there. He could have stopped there if that's all the church was. But he says, you're built. All you people now, you are being built. And he turns his attention to a building. A building that's made up of people. We're the material of the building that God's constructing. The church as a building is what he has in view. And this is all throughout the New Testament as well. 1 Corinthians 3, 9-17 to is a large section on the church as a building. You can look, at that, look that up sometime on your own. Hebrews 3, 1-6 also talks about us as a building that God is building, the body of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4-10, also a very important one we'll might look at in just a moment, also talks about us as a building. So there's different pictures. There's the body, the bride, but I believe the most sublime is this building picture. And Peter talks about it. The author of Hebrews talks about it. Paul talks about it. And he talks about it here. The church is a building. That's starting to paint the definition now of what the church is, not merely its description. It's a building. Now, that's not enough to just say that. Because what kind of a building is it? See, we build different kinds of buildings to do different kinds of things. So we might build a hospital building. So we need, we need a hospital. We're going to build a building that will be a hospital. And what do we do at a hospital? We take care of sick people. So we need certain rooms. We need operating rooms, patient rooms, conference rooms, waiting rooms, all sorts of these things, right, to make up this hospital. Or let's say I want to build a, we want to build an ice arena, a hockey arena. We're not going to build a hospital building. We're going to build a arena that can accommodate a hockey game, right? Or a school, or a restaurant, or a bookstore. So just saying the church is a building isn't enough. What kind of building is God building? For what purpose is he building it? In verse 21, we see what kind of building it is. 
What does it say? Restaurant? A holy temple. That's right. So these people who believe in Jesus, these people who are one with one another and one with Christ, God is building with them a holy temple. There's a specific kind of building that he's building with a specific kind of purpose. A temple. What is a temple? It's not simply original with the Jews, by the way. The idea of making temples has been practiced by societies, even pagan societies, right? A place of worship, yeah. We don't know exactly the beginnings of building temples. Was it, was it simply made, was a temple simply made as a place that we'll just dedicate this place to the worship of this God? We'll just build a building and dedicate it to the worship of some God. Or was it, we actually, by creating this building, create this God and we actually believe he will dwell here? Was the idea of a temple, we're going to actually make this the dwelling place of God or just a place of worship to a God? You see, like a church maybe. This building, is a, we erect a church just to worship God. We don't actually believe God dwells there. But somehow, we don't know how it started, but along the way, the temple became the place where the God dwelt. It became that. Whether it started that way or whether it just evolved into that, it became a place where the, the God dwelt. This is where God is. And I'm using G lowercase. This is where God is. We don't just worship him there. He is there. Or she is there. Now the Ephesians had a big temple in their city. Actually one of the most, they called it one of the seven wonders of the world. They still do. The temple of Diana. That was where Diana lived. Diana the goddess. Artemis. The fertility god. And as a matter of fact, there's, a, there's an old Greek writer who, uh, who commented on the history that when Alexander the Great was born, that same day, Diana's temple was burned. But it was burned, and this author wrote kind of as a joke, but it revealed their thinking. He said, oh yeah, it was burned because she wasn't in her house. She was overlooking taking care of Alexander's birth. See? Her locality was actually had changed. She was she was tending to Alexander's birth, and because she wasn't home, her house burned down. They were trying to explain how that could have burned down, you know. So they actually believed it, like the God dwelt in that temple, and the Ephesians would have been totally familiar with this. But whatever the pagans thought or did, it's different than the temple of God. In Exodus twenty-five, verse eight. Please just turn there real briefly with me. Exodus 25, verse 8. We have God's instruction to the Jewish people about this temple of theirs. He says, Exodus 25, verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's the original purpose of the temple. So I've called this people out of Egypt, but I'm not just going to be distant. I don't just want to be distant. I want to be right in the camp with the goats and the sheep and the crying babies. 
God wants to actually dwell with the people. And so that is the idea, even from God's perspective, of what a temple is. It's the place where God dwells. It's God's house for the purpose of being with his people. There's many things about the temple we could talk about. We can't cover it all. But here, just a couple differences between God's temple and the temple of the pagans. First of all, the temple of the pagans originated with themselves and their own ideas. Whether it was, let's make a temple to worship our God, or let's make a temple and say God dwells in it, it was their idea. They originated that. That's why they built tons of them. But God, God's temple was his idea. And if God hadn't have told the Jews to build one, they should not and would not have built one. They might have tried in rebellion, but he told them to build one. He says, make me a sanctuary. It originates from him. But also the blueprint of these temples are different. The kind of temple is completely different. First of all, the temple or the, the dwelling place of God originally, if you looked at it, wouldn't have been that impressive. The tabernacle was, would have just looked like goat skin tent. A goat skin tent. It was very earthy. It was very temporary. But there was the God of the universe that put his name on that. That's what made it special. So the other temples, they tried to look grand. This temple was very homely, and yet the God of the universe dwelt there. The difference is also is one temple was vile and one temple was holy. So these temples, these pagan temples, were not sanctified places. They were places of prostitution and all sorts of evil and Satan worship and demon possession. The temple of God was holy and everything about the temple of God spoke of God's holiness. The sacrifices, which we're not going to go into today, but we know that the temple was a picture of how holy God was. So this is the place where he dwells. It's a holy thing. You can't approach God just on your own whim. You can't approach God in your sin. You can't approach God and be lewd and be vile. It's all holy, the whole thing. And every bit of it is holy. And everything about the tabernacle and the temple of the Jews was completely foreign and different. It was completely different from the pagan temples. The candlestick, the showbread, the incense, all of that. The curtains. But one major difference also, one last difference I'll point out, is that in these temples, these pagan temples, dwelt an image of the God. Whereas in the tabernacle, of, in the temple of God, there was no image of God whatsoever. And even the Ark of the Covenant, which was the most sanctified item in the temple, wasn't God. There was no image of God in that place whatsoever. His glory would shine there, but there was no item in the temple that would be like, okay, that is God. So you can pick it up. The temple dwelt His presence and everything else was types and ways to approach God, but there was no image. So you've seen these differences. The temple was a place of communion with God. So the priests would go in and minister, but people were allowed to go to the temple in the courts and seek the Lord. That's why they went there. They went to seek God. They went to, to get right with God. If they had sins, where would you go? You would go to the temple. You would make a spring of sacrifice. So it was a place of communion, intimacy with God, prayer, worship, education. The temple was a place where 
people were also instructed and taught. You remember Jesus would hang out in the temple when he was a kid and learn and ask questions? He would also teach in the temple too, right? The temple was a place where the Gentiles would come and pray. My house would be a prayer, a place of prayer for all nations and they would come and be instructed there as well. It was also a witness to the nations of God. And so it wasn't just a place of reconciliation, just a place of sacrifice, which it was. That's a huge part of it and a picture of Christ. But it was also, the thing to see about the temple isn't just that it was simply a picture of the death of Christ. It was also a picture of God dwelling amongst his people and God communing with them. Because God's desire is not just to reconcile us and forgive us of our sins, but his desire is to actually dwell with us and live with us and have relationship with us. Do you see this? If all you think of the temple is just how I get my sins expiated, you're missing it. Certainly that's a part of it. But beyond that is, why is there even a temple there? Why does God even allow for us to, to approach him by blood? Because he's a God who desires to be with us. And you read in the New Testament and of the prophets of the future time, God constantly says, I will be their people, they will be my God, I'll dwell among them. He wants to be with us. Notice three things about the temple. First of all, it was a sanctuary, meaning it was a thing that was set apart from any ordinary building. It was a special building. The temple was set apart. It was a tabernacle, meaning it was God's dwelling. It was a tent originally. This is important. Meaning temporary and mobile. Now think about the first tabernacle. It was a sanctuary. He says, let them make me a sanctuary for me to dwell. A place that was holy and set apart. A dwelling place for God. And it was this mobile tent, temporary. And this is what was in David's heart when he saw it. I'm living in this established palace God is living in this tent. It's temporary. It's, it moves. God desires permanent dwelling. The tabernacle transitioning to the temple is an interesting thing. Think about it for a minute. The tent is temporary and mobile. And then at one point, God sanctioned the building of a temple. Put it in David's heart. But of course, Solomon was the one who actually built it. But what was that desire? Why why the change? And the idea is permanence. Established dwelling. That's the idea. But notice that once the temple is built, the prophets, and remember Stephen, after he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, he says, God doesn't dwell in temples made by man's hands. The temple itself wasn't permanent, but it was a picture of the desire of God to find a permanent place. So God says... In Isaiah chapter 66, he says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where are you going to find a place for me to dwell? Where will my resting place be? Because he's looking for that permanent place. He wants a permanent temple. But it ain't going to be by man's hands. (laughs) He wants a temple, not a tent. Paul doesn't say here, we are a tent. He says, we are a temple a permanent dwelling place for God, which is what he's looking for, which is what the temple represented. But yet, of course, God doesn't dwell in man-made temples. You see? This is what the church is. This is the definition of the church. It's made up of people 
believers, but its definition is a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. And it's interesting that we find that God doesn't only dwell with, and that we can say he does, it's valid, but he also actually dwells in us. Amazingly enough, that's close. God's not only with you, and he is, but he's in you. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, and he's saying the same thing. He's not making a distinction. He's saying, the Holy Spirit is with you and shall be in you. But it's the same thing. He's with you and in you. And so God is in us. And this is what Paul is saying here. We are a temple. God is building with the saints, with believers, a dwelling place for himself, a permanent dwelling place. So let's look at this temple, or let's look at what he's building, because we know what it is. Let me just say this last thing. That the temple of God is a place that can contain the capacity of God. Like, where's God going to dwell? Heaven's my throne, earth's my foot. Where, where am I going to go? Where can my fullness be contained? The fullness of God, the fullness of everything that He is, where can that be contained? And the most amazing thing we, we realize is that it's in the church, God's temple. The church is actually the place that can contain the fullness of what God is. Are you seeing this? Remember, we, we looked at this. This is now, we can go back and see what Paul meant when he, in chapter 1, verse 23, when he's speaking of the church. It is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So somehow this, the church, the people, you and me, made up together as a temple being built, actually contains God in his fullness. Isn't that amazing? Not just his creative power and fullness, but what specifically do you think? What is it about God that can only be contained in a redeemed people? Love. God is love. Where can that be contained? God is the God of grace. Where can that be contained? In a temple not made with hands, a people that can contain who God is, God of love and a God of grace. You can't put that in a box. All right, let's look now at the building itself. What does it say in verse 20? All of us are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That is, Jesus Christ is the foundation and the cornerstone. You might not see that at first reading. Jesus is both the foundation and the cornerstone of the church. You might say, wait, doesn't it say the apostles and the prophets are the foundation? No. It's the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the one that they laid. What was the foundation that the apostles and the prophets laid? Jesus, yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So as you read this, it's not necessarily saying we're built on the apostles and prophets, but we are built on the apostles and prophets' teaching, which is Jesus Christ. We're built on the foundation. The foundation gives the basis for the building. It gives the reason for its existence, and it gives the building stability. 
If you have a different foundation, there cannot be a church. And if you try to build on any other foundation, it's not going to stand. You can't build a temple for God to dwell on a foundation other than Jesus. You can't do it. It's impossible. There's no basis for it, and there's no stability there. And the cornerstone, Jesus himself referred to himself as the cornerstone in Matthew 21, 42, when he said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. The cornerstone is me. The cornerstone is that to which everything else in the building is aligned and fitted. So when the cornerstone was placed, the angles of the building were determined what it would be for everything. Everything would refer to the cornerstone. So not only is Jesus the foundation, the basis for the existence of the church and the stability of the church and what makes the church stand, but Jesus is also to what everything else in the church, everything, everyone and everything that we do is aligned to him. And so Jesus is both the foundation and the cornerstone. As the prophet says in Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. he says, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes in him shall not make haste. So even the prophet described this kind of interesting thing. There's a foundation and a cornerstone that's the same. In the next verse in Isaiah, it says, Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. You know what a plumb line is? A plumb line is, is, the, is the line that you, you test everything by. You make sure it lines up to the plumb line when you're building a building. And what is that? It says righteousness. Who's righteousness? Jesus. Everything in the temple is perfectly righteous. Otherwise, it couldn't be a temple to contain God. And how is it righteous? Because of the cornerstone, Jesus. And every one of us is fit to him. Our righteousness is not our own. Why, why is it that Nathaniel happens to be fit so perfectly in this temple? Is it because Nathaniel stands alone as a perfect righteousness? No, he's, he fits to Christ's righteousness. Therefore, he's perfectly set in this temple. Everything is aligned to him. This is what Paul says here. We're fitly framed. And notice it says in, in both 21 and 22, it starts in whom? In whom? In Christ. In Christ we are set. In Christ we are built. It's all and only because of him, our foundation, our cornerstone. It's interesting that the two most famous apostles, Peter and Paul, they both talk about this exact thing. So if you flip quickly to 1 Peter chapter 2, Paul doesn't actually mention this phrase, living stones, but Peter does, and I believe it's clearly in Paul's mind here, as he's saying that we are being built up into a temple. They didn't build with wood back in those days, they built with stones. So he's thinking this. Living stones. Look at verse 5. After speaking about Christ, it says in verse 5, You also, as living stones are built up a spiritual house or a temple, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Living stones. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever heard of a living stone before? (laughs) Not me. A stone isn't alive. But this is simply what he's saying, is that imagine this temple built of stones, but they're people. We're not dead. We're not lifeless. We're not immaterial. We're people. 
or living stones. It's like this organic building. And this is what both the apostles saw. I wonder if Peter's saying this just because he's just been thinking about it, or if both Peter and Paul saw this in heaven, if they saw the church from that perspective as living stones. Think about a living stone. Each one of us is a stone. Each one of us is necessary and needed in this building. Think about how you became a stone. Jesus went to the quarry. Right? The world. You were just part of this cliff. And he put some dynamite there. The Holy Spirit. You know, he blasted you out. He pulled you up. He worked on you. He chiseled you. The Holy Spirit shaped you. And then when you were finally ready at your conversion, he plugged you in to the church and plugged you into the building. You are a living stone and you've been set in the church and set in the building in this great construction that God is constructing. And it's interesting, in in 1 Kings 6-7, when Solomon was building the temple, all the work on the stones was done outside away from the temple so that there was no sound of tools being used on the temple itself. So at the temple site, they were just fitting the stones in place, one after the other. There was no building or chipping or anything like that because that, all of that was done at the quarry. Isn't that amazing? No, who builds a temple like that? That was by the instruction of God as a lesson for us. Nobody does that. But they built all the stones in one place and carried them and then set them so that there was no tool heard. What's the picture there? It's God's work. It's not man's work. It's the Holy Spirit's work. And it's the work of conversion, the work of setting. And the idea is, is that when we're saved and plugged in, we are perfect. And of course there's other scriptures that talk about us growing and maturing in Christ. But from heaven's perspective, you are righteous. This isn't a process. You're not in the temple, but they're doing some last finish touches on you. If you're a Christian, you're in the temple, you're completely aligned to Jesus, and you're totally righteous in him. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. James Montgomery Boyce, he makes six observations about the stones. I'll just read them briefly. Six applications here. Or observations. One, God is the one who chooses the stones from the quarry. Two, God is the one who fits the stones in place. You don't choose where you are fit in the body of Christ. He's the one who chooses that. He's chosen exactly when Wallace would be saved, exactly where Wallace would be saved. He's chosen where to fit Wallace as well in the body of Christ and gifted Wallace with the gifts that he has. Three, the stones are all related to Christ. They're all aligned to him. Four, the stones are different shapes and sizes. So they're not all the same. We're not all the same because the temple is a huge building and there's different needs and different things. It's kind of like the image of the body. We're all one body, but there's different parts of the body. We're all one building. There's different parts of the building as well. So we don't all have to be the same. That's important. You don't have to look at each other and try to be like each other exactly. It's different. Five, the stones are all linked to one another. All the stones together are not only related to Christ, but we're all related to each other. We're all stones together in this temple for God. And God set us in place. And when one stone's missing, the whole body is weakened. There's certain buildings that 
I know as an engineer you might know better, Brad, but they build them in such a way that, that the weight supports the whole structure. You know, every stone is in place, and you need them or else the whole thing will collapse. Every stone is related to each other. So we're not isolated. We're not just, I'm a living stone sitting over there by myself. If you're a Christian, you're in the body. Whether you like it or not, you are now family with everybody. You're not just sitting over to the side. You're in. And six, the stones are not placed to bring attention to themselves, but to the whole building for the glory of the architect. So you're not put in the church just to bring glory. Wow, what an amazing stone. No, it's like, it's like the disciples... It's like the disciples at the Mount of Olives, they looked at the building and marveled. What an amazing building. What an awesome building. Who is the architect? That's awesome. I mean, when you see a building that you really admire, are you admiring the building and who made it? Or are you admiring this little brick in the building? (laughs) Right? Right? I thought those were good observations. Another thing is the church is made up of living stones from every age. So do not think that the church is made up of presently existing believers only. But there is this building from heaven's perspective, and it's being built right now. By the way, the the tenses here means presently being built. It's not finished. But there's people that have gone before us that are already in place. And they're excited about us joining. Because the Bible says that without them, without us, they're not perfect. And without them, we're not perfect. Because it's one building. If we completely ignore our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, simply because they've fallen asleep, if we completely ignore them, it's like we're just thinking about our part of the building and not even about their part of the building. It's like we just care about half a building. But to see that the, the church, the building, the temple of God is made up of believers from every age. And when we're fit in place, we're not just fit in place with this little gathering. We're fit in place with every gathering in Cache Valley. We're fit in place with every gathering, every believer in Utah, every believer in America, every believer in Europe, every believer in Asia, every believer from the 1700s and the 1500s and the 900 and 600 and even B.C., We're fit in place with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're fit in place with all those who have been righteous by faith in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And without them, we're not perfect. So if we want to have a perfect picture of who we are in Christ and what this church is that we are part of, you can't just think presently existing believers. The church of every age is growing and nearing its completion. And I wasn't going to go here But turn to Zechariah real quick. Go to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah is an intensely prophetic book. And if you just read it historically, you're missing it. But look at chapter 4, verse 6. Remember Zerubbabel is told to build the temple? Go build the temple. If you think just historically, it's just, Herod's, it's just the temple that Herod remodeled. It's the, it's the second temple. This is not the point. The point is the temple of God, the church. And he says this about the church. Verse 6, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, 
Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. This is speaking of Jesus, by the way. And he shall bring forth the headstone. That's the final stone. When this church is finished, when the whole building that's being built is suddenly finished, and he brings forth the headstone, thereof with shoutings crying, Grace, grace unto it. How is this thing built? Grace. Why is there this church? Grace. It was built from bottom to the top. And the last one is grace, 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 grace. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Grace. To the last verse, verse 22 in Ephesians. In whom you also, you also, so you individually, or you as a local body, this little gathering here, you could take it both ways. You also are built in, are needful, are important to God and to the church. And we're built up together. Notice this isn't an individual thing. Christianity is not an individual thing. But God is never going to have a habitation unless it's together. You also are built up together for a house of God. So you can't just solo it. You can't just say, okay, God, I'll be your habitation. No, you together are made up of habit. You need the body to, to have the presence of God dwell there for that temple to be finished through the Spirit. The church is God's permanent dwelling place, His permanent temple. And it's that place of communion, intimacy, worship, prayer, witness, love. And it contains His fullness. Meaning this, the church is made up of people whose essence and purpose is to be God's people in whom God dwells, a body to contain the fullness of who He is, to live in intimacy with Him, to worship Him with thanksgiving, and to sound forth His praises to the world around them. That's the temple. A people for whom God can dwell. Let me just read that one more time. The church is made up of people whose essence and purpose is to be God's people in whom God dwells, a body to contain the fullness of who He is, to live in intimacy with Him, to worship Him with thanksgiving, and to sound forth His praises to the world around them. Let's pray.